The following content is provided to you as a ministry of Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a high-adventure Christian wilderness camp in Andrews, North Carolina. Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters exist to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ through the exposition of Scripture and personal relationships in order to equip the church to impact this generation. For more information, visit our website at swoutfitters.com or follow us on Twitter using the handle at SnowbirdSwo. Enjoy the message. I'll teach you a phrase this morning that you may already be familiar with, but it comes from one of the great periods of church history, which is the Reformation, um, when very bold and brave men brought the scriptures back to the forefront when it had been covered up. And one of the things they discovered is that only God is worthy of glory. And the phrase that came out was soli deo gloria, which means to God alone be glory. He's the only one worthy of our glory this morning and this weekend. And we're going to make much of Jesus this morning as we look at the Scriptures. We're going to begin in Matthew, the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus gives a great, what we call the Great Commission, which was His last standing order before He ascended into heaven, where He is now this morning, by the way, seated at the right hand of God. And He has sent His Holy Spirit to be with us. And I pray for the blessing, have been praying for the blessing of God's Spirit on our meeting this morning that God will make our hearts tender, and that when His Word goes forth and, and impacts you, that you would not be like that hard road where the Word of God lands on your heart, but your heart is so hard that it doesn't seek in, but that your heart would be like good, tender soil, and when the Scriptures come to you, you would listen to the Lord, and you would humble yourself and confess your sins and be willing to do whatever it is that God asks of you. But before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a powerful statement. All authority. We all know what it means. We all should know what it means to live under authority. But Jesus is the end of all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus is our example in all things. So when he told us to go out and preach the gospel, he gave us an example. There are four gospels in the Bible, four records of the way that Jesus taught and ministered because our pattern should always be after him. And we know that one of those patterns is preaching like this in a public forum. Jesus did lots of preaching. But the other side of this is personal evangelism. When we get personal with people, I can't be personal with you in this setting. And I can only have a chance to be personal in conversation with a handful of you this weekend or any other time. And so where does the rest of the work get done? It gets done by you speaking to each other and personally interacting with each other. And Jesus left us with very clear examples of how it is that we should be personal in our evangelism. Let's turn to the Gospel of John, please, chapter 4. In John 3 and 4, we have two examples of personal evangelism. John 3 is very famous. Nicodemus, Jesus is there with a religious leader who has been taught the Scriptures but still does not understand who Jesus is or what is going on. But in John chapter 4... Well, we're going to spend our time this morning. Jesus goes out of his way to spend time with an unknown, we're not even given her name, an unknown woman who is immoral and knows nothing about Jesus. 
But Jesus, as the Son of God, goes out of his way to spend time with her. And the pattern and the way in which he works with her to bring her to salvation and ultimately many people from the town that she lives in is a pattern that we ought to learn from. And I want us to to draw from this morning and learn from Jesus about boldness and personal evangelism. This is something that I had to come to much later in life. I wish that I had learned more about this when I was younger, but better late than never. So, John chapter 4, please stand to honor the Lord as we read his word. I'm going to read John chapter 4, verses 3 through 42, beginning in verse 3. He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it, uh, as did his sons and his livestock? Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. 25. The verse said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. And meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? 
And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months when comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Be seated. In this story, we see the attitude of Jesus towards lost people. He is intentional, close, and personal in his interaction with them. He's traveling in this passage between Judea to Galilee. And as he travels, as every time we travel, you can take different routes. But he chooses to take a route that takes him through this land called uh, Samaria. And the Samaritans were a people that have a heritage within Israel. And if you go back into the Old Testament, when the people of Israel were rebellious and wicked in the way that they lived, and God judged them... For the northern kingdom of Israel, he sent the Assyrian people to take over the country as judgment from God. And the Assyrians took out almost all of the people and sent them into exile and left behind the poor people and people that were no threat to them. And so those people stayed in the land. But as they stayed there, they intermarried and then lost much of their heritage of faith and over time became a compromised people. And as we go on, when Nehemiah and Ezra come back to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, these Samaritan people that had been left behind, as they became known as Samaritans, wanted to join in and help in the rebuilding of the temple. And in Nehemiah 4, we're, we're told that they were not allowed because they were a defiled people, a compromised people. And since they were not allowed to take part in the rebuilding of the temple, there became this division between the Samaritans and the Jews that repopulated the land. And that feud remained for hundreds of years all the way down to the time of Jesus. And so that's why it says very clearly that she is surprised when Jesus talks to her because there were no dealings between these people. But Jesus always seeks out people in a personal way to deal with them no matter where they're from. Because as we know, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost and his enemies, anyone He came to speak to the gospel too. And it's an important first point for us in Jesus in his interaction is how do we deal with people? Who are people in your life that you would rather not talk to? Okay, We can all immediately think of someone that we would prefer not to talk to. And if we're going to take a route even to the copy machine, that we're going to take a different route so that we do not have to talk to that person. There's some of you in here that prefer just not to talk to anybody. And I've known some guys like that. They just prefer to be quiet and just kind of stay to themselves. I want to talk to you too that sometimes that's viewed as as a manly thing. It's not. Jesus spoke to people all the time. And as we're going to see, he interacted with people until he wore himself out. Why? Because he, he had a limited amount of time as the Son of God here on earth. And he was always talking with people and telling them about Jesus. We 
should look at our life and see how it is that we can actually alter our day in order to interact with certain people that God is leading us to interact with and plan our day for the the sake of interacting with someone and telling them about Jesus. We also learn from this passage that Jesus makes his plans to intersect with this woman even though he is tired. It's a very important part of this passage. The disciples were worn out and looking for food, and they go into town, and Jesus sits down here by this well to take a rest. But it doesn't end up being a rest. It ends up being this long interaction with this woman. And I will tell you that if you make a commitment to personal evangelism in your life, it will wear you out. What do I mean by that? If you start seeking people in your workplace your, your neighbors, your coworkers, whoever it is may be around you, and your mind starts to turn to how it is that I can share the gospel with that person, you will begin to have a burden for that person. And it will awaken something in your heart that then you'll start to care about this person too, and then that person. And then you'll care about your kids in a way that you never cared about them. And all of a sudden, you start caring about all kinds of people that are around you. And they're on your heart and on your mind. And you begin to pray for them. And you begin to try to take time to speak with them and work with them. But before you know it, there's their sins and their issues are weighing on you. And it, it makes you tired. When you care, when you listen, when you talk, when you make yourself available, when you give yourself to prayer for others, when you answer the phone when people call you that you really don't want to talk to, but it makes, it makes sense to talk to them, it is a life of fruitful labor. But we're going to see later in this passage, it's, absolutely, it's one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, that tiredness, where it leads to, and how the Lord fills you back up, and, and by His Spirit gives you joy in taking the time to deal with people. So two, two, spot, two things at the beginning of this passage. Jesus is intentionally going to people out of His way, dealing with people that are difficult, and that even in His weariness, it is not an excuse for not talking with this person. So a fruitful labor of personal evangelism in the life of Jesus. We're going to go through some steps of how Jesus deals with this woman. Now Jesus is the son of God and providentially does all this in one shot. Okay? I want to be clear. Normally this does not happen. Everything just doesn't go soup to nuts like this and work out just fine. This is something that I found takes uh, months, sometimes years to work through in people's lives. But we progressively meet them where they are and we keep coming back and following this pattern until we are able to reach them with the gospel. The very first thing that Jesus does is obvious. In verse 7, he sits down and he starts a conversation. How does he start the conversation? He says, give me a drink of water in verse 7. We have to start a conversation before we can ever have a meaningful conversation with someone. You can never have a meaningful relationship with a person if you don't talk to them in a meaningful way. I don't think I have to tell you that we live in a very private and isolated day and age. It's very strange. We have all these methods of connecting each other digitally, and yet we still live in isolation. I believe it is because we don't talk to each other personally, face-to-face, nearly enough. Get up in the morning, you know, often get in, a, in our own personal vehicle, drive to your workspace. So many millions of people work in an isolated cubicle and work in some form of isolation. Um, 
We'd get back in the same car, drive home. I mean, when we lived in Florida, it was the worst because people lived in gated communities. They'd roll up their garage, drive in, shut the door. I mean, you didn't even know who lived there, much less uh, have, a, have a personal, meaningful conversation with them. Sending someone a, a cursory text or liking something on social media, this is not personal interaction. I'm talking about personal conversations. It's gotten so bad that some young people just don't even know how to carry on a personal face-to-face conversation. We have to get past this. And by the way, this is step one. This is the easiest step. If you can't carry on a conversation with someone, that's where you've got to start. And the first step of sharing Jesus with someone else is asking them for a cup of water and just recognizing that they're there and starting to talk to them in a meaningful way. How often do you intentionally start meaningful conversations with your coworkers, your neighbors, or even strangers? The longer that you are a Christian, the closer you should be to the Holy Spirit which means that you hear the leadings and and you feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit, that you're with someone in some situation and you just feel uh, you should talk to this person, say something. And if you don't and you walk away from that situation, you feel guilt, like I should have said something to that person. Why didn't I say something? And usually it's because of fear or some other reason. But when the Lord God is prompting you to say something to somebody, to start a conversation, I'm telling you, do it. Go out of your way, even if you're tired. You know, I think it was Brody giving the conversation, the example of, of him on the plane. Sometimes it's, it's especially when we're tired and we don't want to talk to somebody that the Lord blesses it because then we really, really know that it's of the Lord. Step one, start a normal conversation. What is the woman's response here? She's surprised that Jesus would even talk to her. Okay, sometimes this is going to happen. You may have a neighbor next to you or a coworker that you should have been talking to a long time ago, and you have never engaged them in conversation, and they're on your mind right now while I'm talking to you, thinking, man, I should have talked to that guy a long time ago. Well, when you go up this week and you start a conversation with that person, they're going to be like this woman. Why is this person talking to me? They have never, never engaged me in conversation before. Well, eventually you're going to be able to say, there's a reason why I'm engaging you in conversation, and I normally wouldn't. It's because I care about you, and I want you to know Jesus as your Savior. All right, step two, verse 10. Let's look at verse, uh, let's look at verse 10. Let me, let me back up here. All right, in verse 10, Jesus says, he answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus, as step two, begins to start turning the conversation towards Jesus. This is bridging a conversation or intentionally turning the conversation towards spiritual things. It's a bridge from something that they know or where they are to something that they don't know and something that they've never heard before. And it's intentional. You have to intentionally change things to get there. It is connecting where they are with the gospel and what they need. Let me emphasize that it is not winning an argument. I've had a problem, and some of you may love uh, the study of apologetics. I have a hard time with that because often when I see people that study apologetics, they find that talking to people is like trying to win an argument. Talking to your lost neighbor or coworker is not about winning an argument. And if that is the way you view people, it's not going to work out because they're going to not feel the love and humility that you should have for them. Instead, they're going to feel like you're arguing for them. And so you know what they're going to do? They're going to argue back, and it's going to turn into an argument. 
This is not an argument. Jesus does not argue with very lost people. He argues with religious people that are wrong. We don't have time to talk about that today. But personal evangelism is about is not formulaic. It is ministry. It's having that normal conversation to such an extent that you are listening and observing and you understand what's going on with that person and now you try to appropriately bridge where they are to where they, what they need to hear about Jesus. You start connecting the dots and exposing them to the truth and helping them understand Jesus. Brody gave just a little bit of my background, and I'm certainly not going into that, but uh, I spent a lot of time, I grew up in a Christian home, spent a lot of time at seminary and things like this in, in a very Christian environment. And when I went to, to work for the government and changed environments, I needed that because I was floored by how little people knew about Jesus. People that had been raised sometimes in churches or some denomination of Christianity and knew nothing about Jesus. And when I started to try to make this bridge or to connect these dots, I found that there was no bridge. Like, there, I was making the dots because they didn't know anything about anything about Jesus. And I had made terribly wrong assumptions that people knew certain things that they did not know. And so it is so important not to assume or not to jump to some conclusion, but to make that bridge one step at a time. And I'll tell you, it's an art because it takes a level of confidence because what you're doing is you are intentionally changing the conversation. You're going from football to Jesus or from talking about your boss or your project that day to Jesus. Okay, That's not a normal connection. And it takes some pushing and some moving to get from one to the other. I invited my uh, friend and, and brother Nick to talk to you. I hope that you'll come back and hear him uh, next because he is someone that I believe the Lord has gifted in this, in this aspect. Um, I love to watch him work with radically lost people and talk to them about Jesus and help to introduce them there. But there's something that even if you do not have a spiritual giftedness in that area, there's two things that matter and how it is that you can get from one to the other. And it starts with your love for Jesus. If you love Jesus passionately, you will then over time, begin to love people more than you ever did. Because you may not have cared, couldn't have cared less about people before you love Jesus, but once you start to love Jesus, you start to love other people as well. And as your passion for the love of Christ ignites a love for people, you will figure out how to connect those two, how it is that I can turn and move this conversation so that I can tell this person about Jesus. So Jesus is starting to introduce realities, this idea of him being living water. He tosses it out there, but she doesn't get it. Verse 15, it's clear. She doesn't, she's not tracking. She doesn't understand what's going on here. And so Jesus doesn't stop. He keeps going. It's going to happen with you too. You're going to throw something out there. You're going to talk to somebody. They're not going to get it. All right, fine. Let's keep talking. Let's keep, let's keep doing this thing, and let's keep letting the Lord work in your heart. But where Jesus goes next is radically different than where most people go in personal evangelism conversations, but it's something that we must grasp and must figure out how to appropriately do. In verses 16 through 18, this conversation takes a turn that you would not expect. He says to her, out of the blue, go call your husband and come here. And she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You don't have any husband. You've been married five times and now you're living with the sixth guy. And 
she's convicted by that. We must address sin with people in personal evangelism. Addressing sin so that people know that they need a Savior. Jesus came to save us from our sins, to forgive us from our sins so that we might have peace with God. Too often today, evangelism does not address sin. If people don't feel the weight of their sin and the guilt that they have before God, why would they need a Savior? Like Brody was talking about earlier, this guy, why did Jesus die on the cross? I guarantee you that guy has no guilt in his life. He has no feeling of the weight of his own sinfulness before a holy God. So he doesn't understand why Jesus went to that cross because he doesn't know anything about the holiness of God. He doesn't feel the weight of his sin because he was probably raised in a denomination that goes out of its way to minimize sin. Jesus spoke very clearly about our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. This is not done in pride. This is not done in, I don't need a Savior, but you do. It's done in the greatest possible humility that I have been forgiven of my sins by Jesus. And my only hope is the grace of the Lord God. And your only hope is the grace of the Lord God. So let's talk about your sin. We've been looking through the book of Acts um, as we're, we're beginning a new church in the area where I'm from, and uh, we figured what better thing to do than study the book of Acts at the, as we start a new church. And one of the things that just jumps off the page of studying the book of Acts is the boldness of the new apostles. It's you read these guys, the same guys we're getting ready to talk about here in a second, and their response to this, they're so wrong all the time, and they just look terrible. And they're ashamed of the gospel, and they don't understand what's going on. But then after Jesus raises from the dead, and after he fills them with his Holy Spirit, it's like a totally different group of people. And all of a sudden, they're out there bold in what they're saying. And one of their aspects of boldness, if you read through the book of Acts, is they are accusing to their face the people that uh, crucified Jesus and telling them how they are sinful before God. And if they don't repent, they're going to be lost. They are extremely bold in telling people about their sinfulness. And there is a great response to it. Often there's these phrases like cut to the heart and they were broken in their spirit. Like people felt the weight of their sin and they knew their need for the Lord Jesus. And so it is. We must be in this same way. It takes love empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak to another person about sin in their life. Let me read it again. It takes love empowered by the Holy Spirit to to speak to another person about sin in their life. Most personal evangelism never gets to this specific point. And so it is ineffective because people do not feel the weight of their sin. They feel no guilt before God. They have no need for a Savior because they do not recognize their guilt. We are wrong in assuming that the lost world knows right from wrong. That's something, again, I, I just I radically underestimated. People do not understand right from wrong. Why do they not understand right from wrong? Because they don't know the Scriptures. And Jesus reveals himself to us in the Scriptures, and we don't clearly understand right from wrong until we get into the Scriptures and understand by the teaching of Jesus, what is right from wrong. So what does the lost world feel? They're under the condemnation of God, but what they feel is a general guilt, a loneliness, a depression, even unto suicide, but they don't understand what is going on. And so we have to come to them and help them 
understand this. This is particularly true with sexual sin in our day and age because our culture is pressing as hard as it possibly can press to take all things sexual and move them out of a moral category into a category of of choice and taste, Um, similar to what food you like. If you want to eat Chinese or Thai or Mexican or whatever, that's just your thing. You know, if you want to have sex with two men or a man and a woman or act like a man and have sex with another man or what, it's just a, it's an aspect of taste and it's not a moral issue. And our day and age, our, our non-Christian culture has been so effective in that that many people don't even understand that it is a moral category anymore. But yet they, they feel this weight and this guilt and they know their relationships aren't working out and their life's not working out, but they don't understand what is going on. And so we have to tell them and help them understand what God's will is for their life and that, in fact, they're living in sin, but yet God is gracious and merciful and will forgive them and make them whole and new. I find in personal evangelism that the the person that God has led me to, if I have been faithful in these previous two steps of engaging them in normal conversation, being a friend, caring about them, observing their life, understanding them, starting to have some aspect of of spiritual conversation with them by trying to bridge the relationship to Jesus, that by that point in time, I know what the problem is, or at least one of the glaring problems. I know if it's alcoholism or if they're cheating on their wife or if it's pornography or whatever it is. I'm in all of it, but I know something. And usually by that point in time, the conviction of the Lord Jesus began to build in my heart that, I need to go talk to this person about this because here's the glaring issue and they've got to confess this sin or they're never going to be able to come to Jesus because it's going to be the stumbling block that stops them. One of the most unusual um, instances of this happened some years back for me in our our work Bible study, um, which we'll talk about in some other setting, but... um, I was preparing to speak from a passage in the Gospel of John, and, the gospel, and this passage had to do with, with fornication, which is the Bible word for having sex before marriage, which is not allowed by God, of course. Um, all prepared to come in and teach this, and I come in, and a, co- uh, a co-worker who's a longtime friend now was, had been living with a woman for years, and that was just the way it was, because he didn't think anything of it. It was, it was the way life was for him. And I had invited him, didn't know if he was going to come, didn't know what, what week he was going to come. Well, lo and behold, here he is, sitting at the table uh, with this passage. And I start to just freak out because, you know, if I, I'm either going to teach this passage and it's going to be directly in the face of this brother or I'm going to have to just change the passage and be, or, or speak about something else. And, uh, you know, I actually doubled back and went to the bathroom and was like, God, like, what am I supposed to do about this situation? This is very personal here. Go teach. So go teach the message. Go through this passage. This guy gets up, leaves. I have no idea what's going to happen. I'm thinking, this is bad. Like, our work community is very small. This person is probably never going to talk to me again. I don't know what is going to happen here. We travel that week. I don't see him. Come back for Bible study the next week. Lo and behold, there he is. All smiles. Thrilled to be there. Like, I don't know what's going on. So we keep going down through the weeks. Then we go through the months of, of meeting together. But yet nothing has changed in his life. He's still living with this woman. It's still the same thing. And then it becomes another problem because, like, all right, I, I know he's heard this now, but nothing's happening here. And so then the, the conviction begins to build that I, I need to take it to even the next level of talking to this person directly. Like, I've got to directly talk to him about his sin and what's going on. 
Anytime that you know that that's the case, you need to start praying. You need to pray and ask God for a specific situation. God, give me an opportunity to talk with such and such person about this issue. And providentially, God will orchestrate a situation. Always. Why? Because he is calling people to himself. And if you open yourself to do that work, he will create the opportunity. And so it wasn't long before we were sitting standby in a helicopter together, and it was just me and him. And, like, nobody in hours of time. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord, like, this is, this is, uh, if I get out of this helicopter and don't talk about this to this guy, it's just straight-up disobedience. And so, you know, I screw up the courage. And, brother, like, it's, we've been talking about this a lot. And uh, you've got to understand that this is sinful. Like, you can't do this. You either got to get married or you all got to split up because this is not right before God. Blah, it just all comes out. I, I know, I know. I've been, I've been under such intense conviction about this. And we should never think that because God is laying something on our heart that he's not also doing the other half of the work. Do you realize that? It's not just God working in your heart. He's working in the other person's heart as well. And so if he's put that level of intense conviction on your heart to go do something, he's also doing the other side of that work and that other person's heart. And what will happen is if you don't go do it, he will send someone else. That person will be saved, but someone else will have the joy and opportunity of speaking with them and leading them to salvation, and you will miss that blessing. But this, this brother then comes to salvation. They get married. Um, it, they now you know, are in church. Every, it, it's, just a, it's an awesome story. You know, sitting next to me next to, in Bible study just a couple weeks ago, you know, five years later. So... This story is not about me. This story is about Jesus bringing conviction of sin. But I'm telling you, in personal evangelism, you will come to that very difficult speed bump of having to talk to people about their sin. I think it's obvious that you can't talk to somebody about their sin if you're living in the same sin. So this comes to our personal holiness. Not our personal perfection, let me remind you, but you're you're striving towards it. We all must confess our sins because we all fail. But if this person sees you uh, walking an authentic life for the Lord, your words to them will be effective by the Holy Spirit. It is after this that this conversation takes a spiritual turn. After this, she begins to grasp this is not a normal conversation. We're not talking about football anymore. This is something much, much more significant. So our steps are, step one, start a conversation, a normal conversation. Step two, begin to bridge the conversation to Jesus. Step three, begin to address sin in the other person's life so that they understand their need for a Savior. Step four comes in verses 21 through 26. In verse 21 through 26, Jesus starts to get into all kinds of different things. He tells her uh, about worship. The idea that God is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. And it ultimately ends with him revealing himself to her as the Son of God. That he is, in fact, the Messiah that the Jews had been waiting for for so many years. What step four is, is a deeper discussion of spiritual truths. Going from surface level things to more important things. And answering questions and dealing with difficult issues. As the Lord calls people to himself, they will have lots of questions, okay? It's not, an, it's not a simple thing, especially if it's a person that is older. They're going to have baggage, issues, and questions. And you should not accept, expect that some one, two, three-step situation that's a formula that you learn somewhere is going to satisfy that. 
Maybe it will. Usually it won't. Usually there's lots of questions you've got to figure out and work through. And Jesus begins to tell her more about himself, about worship, about him as the Messiah. Evangelistic ministry, personal evangelism ministry, is taking biblical truth and applying it to a lost person's situation. Applying it to where they're at. Through our normal conversation with them, we should understand if there's depression in their life and there's sadness that they cannot explain, we've got to start talking to them about the hope of heaven, about the comfort of the Holy Spirit. If anger is pouring through them, we've got to talk to them about patience and the abiding nature of Jesus Christ and how Jesus can take away their anger. If it's addiction, the power of Jesus to break bondage of sin and death, they're deeply materialist, we've got to talk to them about not loving the world, but the eternal things of Jesus being far more worthwhile than anything they can gain in this world. If it's adultery, we've got to talk to them about the design of marriage and God's joyfulness there. But in general, we must tell people who Jesus is. They have to understand who he is before they can believe in him. We must answer their questions about the authority of the Bible. Many people have questions about the authority of the Bible. Why is it should I listen to this Bible? What is this book? Why should I care? And we've got to be able to talk to them about that. My dear brother, Andrew Pajak, um, I wish he could be here this week. Uh, maybe he'll listen to this one day and hear this. But he came to salvation during our new, oper- new operator training school. It was the craziest time for the Lord to bring him to a crisis of faith. But this dude had more questions than anybody I could ever I'll never forget it as long as I live. He would come in every morning during PT on the shooting range, I don't know what, with just question after question after question after question. And this was a guy who was raised in the Catholic Church, went to a Catholic school, Catholic everything, and did not know that there were two testaments in the Bible and couldn't tell me one thing about Jesus when we first started this situation. But God was so intensely calling my brother to himself that he could not stop asking questions. I was talking to Nick about one of, the, one of my favorite uh, uh, stories there. We were out in the range shooting, and there's another, one of our firearms instructors who's a, a passionately godly man that I hope one day can come and address this audience. We were loading mags, and he, for some reason, the topic of that day was, did God create the world? And it's like, did God create the world? He's like, yes, God created the world. Like, I, I'm just trying, I don't want to fail out of this thing because I'm going to get sent back to Miami where I came from if I fail out of this thing. And I am not uh, a naturally good shooter. And so I'm, I don't really want to talk about the creation of the world right now. I just need to pass this firearms qualification. So loading mags, did God create the world? Yes, yes, Andy, God created the world. How is it? Uh, get into it. I'm like, yeah, I just, ask somebody else. Andy. And it is providentially, there were four other Christians around the table that day loading mags. And he just starts polling him. Did God create the world? Yes. Did God create the world? Yes. Did God create the world? Yes. And then he goes to Derek Bailey and, did God create the world? Yes. Get back on the range. You know, it's everybody there. That is not an accident. It was God's providence that everybody at that table, loading mags at that time, believed that God created the world. And it wasn't long before Andy had his questions answered and he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And his, his life has been radically different ever since. It was worth it. Answering spiritual questions and teaching spiritual truth requires boldness. Why? Because you're changing a person's worldview. You're telling them the way that they understand the world to be is wrong. And in fact, this is, in fact, this is the truth about the world. And that takes boldness, and it takes strength, and it takes wisdom. 
one of my favorite people, uh, I haven't seen him in years, but he was one of the most impactful people in my life, was a man named Roger Critcher. He led the college ministry at Appalachian State when I was there. He inherited the college ministry when the previous staff college minister was caught in adultery with one of the college students and was fired. And Roger and his wife, Denise, he was a truck driver. He owned a truck driving firm and a Christmas tree farm. He had never been to college in his life and was asked to lead the college ministry. Roger knew that he was way behind in the knowledge curve to be able to lead uh, college students and graduate students and understanding the scriptures. And so Roger taught himself by reading everything he could get his hands on. And by the time I came into his, his sphere of influence, he had a library of Christian books in his house. And this man and his wife, through the years of college students cycling through their house, has had more young people go to the mission field and the ministry, uh, be Christian businessmen, uh, than anybody I know personally that is not uh, uh, on staff at a church somewhere. Roger is incredible. But he answered the call of, I must learn more so that I can answer these questions. It's okay to say you don't understand or you don't have the answer a certain amount of times, but you better go learn the answer and figure out what these things are because Jesus is worth learning about. And you're going to find that as you seek these answers, the Lord will meet you there and help you understand himself and you will be able to have a wise answer for the person who asks you so that you can give them what they need. Let's turn briefly to the disciples. So after this incredible encounter of Jesus dealing with this person, up to her final response is that she believes in verse 28 and goes back to the town to tell everybody that's there, I've, I've met the Messiah. And what are the, the disciples come back from lunch and they're just like, they just dump water on this occasion and are just don't understand what's going on at all. The first thing in verse 27 they say, they, they actually don't even have the courage to say it. They want to say, why are you talking to this woman? And, and they, don't even, they don't even say it. But Jesus knows their thoughts. And they do not have the same love of Jesus. But before we judge these people, let us think in our own hearts. If you were interacting with a woman that was past middle age or a dude that's past middle age, whoever, a person... It's been married five times and is living with somebody and they're, and they're well past uh, any normal time when their heart would be sensitive to the gospel. Would you go out of your way to talk to this person and believe that Jesus could change their heart? Would you have the love of Jesus for a person like that? I, I definitely would say that I would not, without the work of the Lord in my heart, care about this person. But Jesus did. Jesus loved very difficult people, people that were way outside the norm. And he wanted to see them come and be forgiven of their sins and ultimately worship him because he was worthy. And when she comes back, she's honoring Jesus. We've got to have a heart of love for people that are way outside the box of what we normally think about or care about. But the other thing the disciples were interested in and focused on was their own weakness. Like, they're just hungry. Jesus, it's way past dinner time. Like, let's go eat. Come on, let's get out of here. And then Jesus takes them down this trail again. They're just totally not, like, they're not even close to where he's at. And this is one of my absolute favorite verses. He says in verse 31, Meanwhile, the disciples are urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has someone brought him something to eat? And the answer is no. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What is he saying there? 
He's saying that even though he is physically worn out, talking to this woman and seeing her come to faith is joyous. It, It does something to fill his soul with the strength that he needs. And you know, if you have been involved with Christian ministry, that when you see a brother or a sister or your child or your neighbor or someone make great strides in the faith or come to salvation for the first time, there's a reason why Jesus calls it being a fisher of men. There's nothing like reeling in a big fish. There's been some talking about hunting here. I like saltwater fishing. And reeling in a big fish, man, is nothing more exciting than that. And there is no greater joy than seeing someone come to salvation after you have shared Christ with them. And it will fill your soul with so much joy that you will go out and do it again. And you can be worn out. I mean, literally, there are Christian biographies of great Christians that wore themselves unto death, pouring out their life for other people to come to know Jesus. And that's the, that's the, the heart that we should have for others. Because what does Jesus say in verse 35? He says, Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. So they're, just, they're waiting for dinner And Jesus is saying, this is one, there's more coming. And literally they were. Like she goes into the town and they start coming out. Two more days of ministry where he's just teaching, teaching, teaching. There's no break. And they begin to believe that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was. Jesus came to seek and to save the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. And i got to tell you something, guys. Um, I don't say this out of pride. I'm saying it out of, this is the way I was raised. And the only thing about this weekend that's sad to me is that there's not many boys here. I don't know. I don't understand. I don't understand why that is, but I, I'm sure a lot of you have boys. I'm, I'm going to come back to this conference next year, and I hope that 25% of this audience is your boys. Like your boys need to sit next to you, and they need to hear all these men worship, and they need to hear good teaching, and they need to ride the big swing with dad. It's uh, it's cool to come down here with other campers, but they need to do it with you. And so Jesus came to seek and to save. These people had a great heart for them. They were radically lost every day. Um, And so they come out of the town. And we'll end with this. Verse 41 and 42. They'd heard the, the witness of this woman. And they came out and they heard Jesus. But they end like this. Verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So what starts is a personal interaction between you and another person, and God gets hold of their heart, and they believe, and they go tell somebody else. They may actually bring that person back to you to start talking to them, but ultimately Christianity is one heart at a time. It's Jesus dealing with one person's soul after another person's soul after another person's soul. One at a time, every person making a personal decision to turn away from their sins, confess their sins, and believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So when I preach and teach, I always believe that there should be a response. Why? Because God blesses the teaching of his word. And there is something going on in your heart. The first thing that we're going to do, what's going to happen is our musicians are going to come up here. But I'm asking you, first of all, any of you here that do not know Christ as your Savior, and you're sitting in your seat right now, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt, you have not accepted Christ. You have not confessed those sins. You have not believed in Jesus. Maybe you were raised in a church that uh, it was just a cursory thing for you. I don't know. But if you walk out of this building today and do not give your heart to the Lord and do not believe in him, um, it's a problem because your heart gets one step harder. 
And every time you say no to God, your heart gets harder. And it becomes harder to turn around and say yes. If God's calling you to himself this morning, you need to come down. That's going to be the first, first group. And there's not going to be any eyes closed, whatever. You've got to not be ashamed of the gospel. Not be ashamed to, 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 to come down. Everyone here will rejoice with you. Don't be afraid of that. But um, that's the first thing. The second is something that I feel like is a, is a direct connection that is not often made. We're talking about boldness and personal evangelism. The first step of obedience that the Lord... And, um, Brody was kind of bouncing around, and I, I'm not going to bounce around on it. I, I just The scriptures are very clear that baptism is related to confession of faith. That after we come to know Christ as our Savior, the first step of obedience after that, given right there in the Great Commission, be baptized. Why is that? Because it's symbolic of us being buried with Christ and raised to newness of life, and it's done publicly. So all the world sees that I am now associating myself with Jesus Christ. And there are some of you out here that have trusted Christ as your Savior, but have been hesitant to publicly associate yourself with Jesus. Don't, you should understand that you'll never have boldness in evangelism and to ever go out and talk to somebody about Jesus if you're not even willing to step, take that first step of obedience to be baptized and tell the world publicly that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. If you have never been baptized, but you believe in Christ as your Savior, you need to get be baptized this weekend. If not, make a commitment and go back to your church and be baptized. But you need to be baptized. And so... I'm asking that for the second group. If you fall in that group and you have never been baptized, but you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to come down front. We need to talk about it. The third group, I don't, you don't have to come down. I don't, you do whatever you want to do. But the third group is praying for someone. I believe that as I've been talking about this, most of you have some person or persons on your heart right now that you know you should have been talking to them about the gospel, that they've been in your life perhaps for years, and you have not made the intentional decision to build that bridge, have that conversation, and they're on your heart right now. You need to stop and pray. If you want to come up here, if it makes you feel better, and get on your knees and pray for that person, maybe it's that level of conviction in your heart, you do that. But pray for that person and begin to make a plan to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. And watch the Lord use your faithfulness and to see them come to salvation. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this blessed time. Thank you for your example. And I pray, Lord, that you would make us bold like you were in personal evangelism, but that you would help us to be those that are full of love and humility. Lord, that we would go out and speak to our friends and neighbors, our children, and because we love you and we love them, and we so much want to see them come to know you as their Savior. I pray for men that may not know you this morning, that they would be saved. Today would be a new day for them, that their life would change forever this morning. I pray for those that are scared and timid, as have Christians throughout the ages, have been afraid to associate themselves publicly with you for what persecution it may come to them. But I pray that this morning, men would come forward for baptism that have not been baptized, that they might boldly associate themselves with Jesus and then go forward and tell. And I pray, God, for those many people who are on our heart this morning, that we would be faithful in going out from this place and talking to them in weeks to come that you would create those divine and providential appointments that we might speak to them and that in the moment you would give us the right words to say, Lord, to speak to them about Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.